Well, good morning, Oakwood. Glad you're here. Good to see everybody this morning and uh, appreciate all of you who are in the room, but also all of you who are online. Thanks for uh, carving out this time to be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his family today and the family of God. It's good to be together and uh, it's good to, good to know that God's still on the throne, right? With all that's happening in the world, just remember, God is still large and in charge and on the throne. And uh, we started a series last week that I think is going to elevate our view of God, uh, that's going to show us how wise He is, how smart He is, and how much He loves us through this series on the Ten Commandments. So, uh, low-hanging fruit, if you were here last week, or maybe you know what the first commandment is, but last week we talked about how God's first commandment Uh, His first thought, and I believe these are progressive in order, they're put there uh, on purpose and and strategically, and the first command was have no other gods before me. And what God was saying there is I want to be first, I want to be the highest, I want to be the best, I want to be your first thought, I want to be your last thought at the end of the day, I want to be the center of all of your life. And then we get on to the rest of the commandments. And I say they're progressive in nature because today we're going to be talking about commandment number two. And commandment number two talks about idols. And if you think about it, it's almost like last week God was saying, uh, yes, uh, have no other gods before me. And let me clarify that a bit by saying you're not going to have any idols. You're not going to worship any idols. It's almost like it's just this progression as we go deeper into it, and that's where we're going to begin this morning. Now, uh, we're, we're going to get to uh, our passage in Exodus chapter 20, where the, where the um, verses of the commandments are. Um, that's where we're going to end up, but we're going to begin this morning in Isaiah chapter 44. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn there this morning to Isaiah chapter 44. And if you didn't bring your Bible, you can grab your phone or your tablet uh, if you haven't downloaded it already, download the Oakwood app and all the sermon notes and uh, all the uh, bullet points and all that will be right there for you this morning. But we want you to engage the Word of God. I, I was reminded of this uh, from an email I got this week, is engage the Word of God on Sunday morning. The way you, you engage it is you have something in your hands and you're doing something active. So you're not just listening, okay? So if you're getting comfortable right now and you're like, dude, it's awesome. Just going to sit here and listen to the sermon and, you know, fight sleep for the next 30 minutes. Like, no, 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 no. Engage the Word of God. Have a Bible in your hand. And here's the great news. If you don't have your phone, which everyone has their phone, but if you didn't have your phone and you left it in the car, right, because you're really spiritual, um, or you don't have your tablet and you're like, oh, I don't have my Bible either, there's one in the pew around you. So either in front of you, behind you, or beside you, depending on where you're sitting in the room, there's a Bible there. Go ahead and grab it. Isaiah uh, chapter 44 is where we're going to begin this morning. So here's just a little bit of background into why Isaiah chapter 44, why we're going to begin there this morning. I read this passage for the first time when I was um, a middle schooler at church camp. I remember that specifically. It was in like the Daily Devos or something. I don't remember the exact circumstances. I don't even remember if we were talking about idols or you know, sometimes they give us these little pamphlets and I'd have like a devotion in there with some scripture. I don't remember the context, but I remember reading this passage. And, and, and a few weeks ago when I, when I started uh, um, writing this sermon and thinking about it, I, I remember thinking, oh, Isaiah 44, there's that passage that talks about that. And I remember that had impacted me as a kid. And, and so that's where we're going to begin this morning is reading this passage and, and understanding it, allowing God to speak to us uh, about idols in, in a different context. And then we'll get back to our, our commandment. Now, I want you to understand this morning that when I, I, I read this originally in middle school, my reaction to it was completely different than the last few weeks. 
Uh, my reaction to it back then was, was much more dismissive in nature uh, because I just didn't think it applied to me. And I thought, how stupid is this? But uh, ho- hopefully as we read it today, uh, you'll allow the God to speak and, and to show you some things in this. So um, Isaiah chapter 44, beginning with verse 6, says this. This is what the Lord says. And so this is spoken through the prophet um, Isaiah. He's receiving the word of the Lord. And he says, this is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Okay, God is listing his credentials here. Not that he needs to, but he does that for us because we're humans and we're just kind of, you know, dumb sometimes. And so he's, he's reminding us, here's who I am, okay? He's, the, he's Israel's king. He's the redeemer, the Lord God Almighty. He's the first. He's the last. And apart from him, there is no God. Verse 7, so then, so who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me. What has happened since I established my ancient people? And what is yet to come? Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No. There is no other rock. And notice the capital R there. No, there is no other rock I know not one. It's almost like God is like flexing his muscles here. You know, he's reminding us who he is. And then we get into verse 9. And it shifts to this narrative with some, with some thoughts on a story, but also some commands here in, in verse 9. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Strong words here, right? I mean, it's like God's passing some judgment down here. Verse 10, who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. And he's going to give us some specific examples of this. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and he loses his strength. He drinks no water and he grows faint. And notice he's talking about how this uh, blacksmith is finite. You know, you know, if he quits eating and drinking, he just grows faint. Then in verse 13, it shifts to a different illustration, the carpenter. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it into human form, human form in all of its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow amongst the trees of the forest or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god. His idol, he bows down to it, and he worships. He prays to it and says, save me. You are my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over. 
so they cannot see. And their minds are closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Yeah, I read that in middle school. And after I read it, I had this reaction, and maybe some the same reaction some of you are, are thinking right now, which is, man, that's, that's really dumb. I mean, that's, that's stupid. Huh, makes total sense to me, right? I mean, the blacksmith, he's proud of his work, and then he, he makes for himself this, you know, this image or this idol or something that he's going to worship and something that he's fabricated together. And then you get to the carpenter, and oh, he's, he's working with wood, and he saw the wood, and he's used some of it for fire, and he's, he's cooked his meat and baked his bread over it, and now he makes it into an idol. And I remember reading this at the junior high level and thinking, that's so stupid. I would never do that. You know, I mean, it's dumb. You know, no one does that nowadays. I mean, think about it. I mean, how many of you have an idol, right? I mean, how many of you have like a little, you know, statue and you make a shrine for it at home and you set it on the shelf or maybe it's wood or maybe it's metal or, you know, it, but it's fabricated, right? It's a, it's a created thing. And then I got to thinking about it. Now, wait a second. I might struggle with or have struggled with created things, sometimes taking the priority in my life, sometimes my pursuit or my attention or maybe even my affection has gone toward something that was created, something that was made or fabricated. And that's the interesting thing about idols is they're all made. We make them. We fabricate them. If you Read passages throughout Scripture, and even in verse 9 of Isaiah 44, it says all who make idols. They don't just like, whoop, show up, you know. They, it's, something, it's something that we've created, and it's something that becomes priority in our life. It sounds silly, and we read that, and it sounds really silly to us, but I'm telling you what, this is serious. And our idols may not be stone. It may not be wood, but we have them just the same. Last week, God said, have no other gods before me. And this week, it's like he's going in a progression to another level to address something very specific in the second commandment. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6. Now keep in mind everything that we've just read because this, this, the sermon is going to grow and it, it, it's, it's going to come back. And you're going to hopefully have these light bulb moments this morning. That's what I've been praying for. But Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 4 as we get to commandment number 2. And this is what God says. You shall not make, oh, there it is. It's something you make. It's a created thing. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. In heaven, above, 
or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do you see the, the paradox there in verses 5 and 6? That, that God is a jealous God. He's punishing children to the third and fourth generation. But then in verse 6, he's showing love. He's punishing, but he's showing love. And that's because our God is a God of justice. He has expectations. His expectations for our life are actually good. If we walk in his ways, we are blessed. And yet so many times we choose our own way. We read this commandment, the second commandment, and this is a great summary of it, commandment number two. No idols and no idol worship. No idols and no idol worship. So many times we might summarize commandment number two by just saying no idols, but he's specific here. He says, don't make for yourself an image in the form of anything, but then he says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why? Because you'll have no other gods before me. Why? Because I'm your rescuer. Remember we talked about this last week. I am the God that just got you out of Egypt. Hundreds of years of slavery. I have delivered you. And because of that, because of your great appreciation for not only for just what I do for you, not that it's just utilitarian, but for who I am in my character, you'll have no other gods before me. And no idols and no idol worship. And when we read this, when we think about it, and we try to understand it more, we realize that this image or this idol is a created thing. So I think it's important for us to understand this morning that God doesn't want any competition for being the object of our worship. He wants to be it. What is an idol then? An idol is created anytime we exchange the creator for something created. Anytime we exchange the creator for something created, it's an idol. I used to live in Colorado. Amy and I lived there in Paonia, Colorado. It's a little town on the western slope. While we were there, we came across a group of people um, that uh, seemed to really, really like nature. Uh, we called them granola people, and, and, and they did like granola. But, uh, yeah, it, it was just one of those things that, uh, that, you know, these were the people that were living in a tent down by the river. You know, it used to be like a van down by the river. But if it was a van, it would be like an eco-friendly van down by the river, you know, electric or something. And, and, but anyway, uh, you know, they, they, they loved nature, and, and they were into trees. And I remember we were having massive forest fires when we lived there, and they were, like, mourning. Like, they were crying because trees were burning down. And, and they loved trees and they love nature and they love the river and they love the lakes and they they just love the outdoors they love the creation of God and what I realized and, and Amy realized we actually had conversations about this I remember is that it seemed like they loved the creation more than the creator because if you ask them about God God was like mother nature mother earth I remember that was one of the terms mother earth mother earth mother earth and they, they, they got distracted because they, they were worshiping what had been created by God and not the creator God himself. 
And they'd become an idol in their life. And even though they, they didn't even seem to understand it, like in their heart's purpose was, you know, to take care of the earth, that's not a bad thing. To enjoy God's creation and nature, that's not a bad thing. To value it, not a bad thing. But when you value that, and it becomes the object, and it becomes the center, and it becomes the thing you obsess about, and the thing that's the most and the highest in your life, then it becomes an idol. It takes that place. And what is that idol? What is an idol? It's a counterfeit God. Anytime we take something that was created and we spend more attention about and more time about what was created more than creator, it's, it's an idol. It's a counterfeit God. It's a fake. It's something that's posing as God but has no qualities or characteristics of God really at all. And yet, we'll give it our attention, our full attention. And the fact is, if we're honest this morning, no one really likes a fake, Right? No one likes a fake. I, I was reminded of that watching the movie Elf, you know, a great theological movie, Elf, at Christmas time with my family. Yes, that's a funny movie. There are parts that are funny. One of the funny parts is when Santa Claus is coming in. So if you've seen it, and I'll, I'll try to paint a picture if you haven't, but if you've seen it, you know, you can smile and, and laugh. It's, it's okay. But Santa Claus is coming in, and Elf has stayed up all night decorating the store, and he's turned it into the North Pole. Okay, and Santa Claus is coming, he's so excited, you know, and the scene before was, you know, oh, I know him, I know him, you know, it's like he's so excited, Santa's coming, Santa comes, and he, and he, and he sits down, and he starts seeing the kids, and he goes over to him, and he leans, and he's like, you're not Santa, he starts making these accusations, you don't smell like Santa, you smell like beef and cheese, he's like, you should be ashamed of yourself, you sit on a throne of lies, you know, and he's giving Santa a hard time. Now, if you know what happens next, then he ends up like fighting Santa. And why does he do it? It's because he's so passionate about pointing out that Santa is a fake. You know, because they're punching and things are falling over and, you know, the security at the, at the stores like jumping on him, trying to separate him. And he's like, he's not Santa. He's not Santa. He's a fake. He's a fake. And we would all say, yeah, yeah, we don't like fake things. We like to point out fake things. We've had a lot of fake things the last few years, right? I even coined this term fake news, you know? We don't like fake things, right? And yet, sometimes we accept them. Sometimes we accept the fake things. When I was in Dallas, uh, that's where I went to school, as a Dallas Christian College. And I remember in the, uh, the uh, mid-90s there, one of the popular things to do is to have these sales on the side of the road. And if you drove down I-35, and if you've ever been to Dallas, I-35E, going through Farmer's Branch and heading kind of toward into downtown, on the service access roads, there would just be trucks, box trucks, pickup trucks, and people just kind of selling their wares, just, just right there on the service road. So people would exit and go see what it was. They had all of this stuff that you could buy that was really cool, like the new uh, Michael Air Jordans. Like, I don't know, version 27 had released, you know? And these trucks would have them, like, in every size and every style. And you're like, wow. And theirs on the side of the road was like 30 bucks. I mean, if you went to Foot Locker, these things were like $160. And that was, you know, I mean, that's a lot of money today. But you're thinking, man, back then, that was a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, you'd, like, mortgage your house to get, you know, Michael Air Jordans. And you couldn't find them because Foot Locker was always out. They only made so many. But it's because they had sold them to these people on the side of the road, and they were selling them out for 30 bucks. I mean, it was a great deal. And, and there was other things you could find there. Like, you might remember this, ladies. There was this brand of purses, and I don't know if it's still, like, a, a deal today, but Dooney & Burke. 
was like the brand. I, rem- I remember that. I was, that was a big deal. Dooney and Burke. Everyone wanted a Dooney and Burke purse and nice, you know, leather. And they would sell those on the side of the road. And if you went to go get a Dooney and Burke purse, I mean, you're talking like two to $500, you know, they were like $39.99 right there on the side of the road. And, and, and then I remember uh, sunglasses were big, you know, and, and sunglasses. And so they would have Oakley's. I mean, if you went to the mall down the road, like Valley View Mall, you know, they were 150 bucks in the little kiosk at the mall. But there on the side of the road, they were like 10 bucks. I mean, these were great things, right? Now, you know where I'm going with this. All of these things are fake, right? Now, we accept them, and they're good for personal use. We accept them, they're good for personal But what we don't like about them is you, if, we, if we had to pay full price, right? If they sold you those Michael Air Jordans, they said, these are and you bought them, and then you got home, and you're like, ah, it's a fake. It really bothered you. Now, if you get them for 30, you can accept the fake. It looks real enough, you know, maybe it didn't have the MJ on the bottom corner in the third row, but that's the only thing that was different, right? You know, you knew your fakes and your real ones, but we accepted it because it served our purpose. But by and large, we would say, well, we don't like fakes unless they serve our purpose, which might be part of idolatry. It is what, what do we want and what's serving our purpose at the time? Because I think these idols, what we don't realize is many times these idols, they absorb our heart more than God does. They obsess our mind more than God does. I preached a, a series on this a couple of years ago called American Idols. Um, and by the way, the show's coming back. So if you're an American Idol fan, it's coming back in February. I don't know if they'll have masks or how that'll work. If it'll be virtual or in person, but I'm sure they'll, they'll figure something out. But there are American idols. And, and what I had shared in that series, was, there were some idols that we don't think about because a lot of times we think of, you know, graven image, stone. But really there's a broader definition as you study the whole of Scripture. It's just when you exchange something, you know, for the creator for some created thing and that becomes the main thing in your life, then you're worshiping an idol. And we worship idols sometimes. And some of our American idols could be something like the idol called more. If I just had a little bit more. Everybody say more. More. Okay. If I go like this, every time I go like this, I want you to say more, right? Because if I had a house that just had a little square footage, you know, where me and the kids could spread out and have our space, then I might be satisfied. If I had a car with a little more features, you know, a little less miles, a little more features, and then, you know, if, I, if my bank account just had a little bit more in it, then I would be really satisfied, and, you know, if I could just get more accolades, and uh, you, you, you see where I'm going with this, is it, it's more and more and more, and then the funny thing about more is when we get more, we're never satisfied, <laughs> It has this opposite effect on us. But maybe for some of us, if we're being honest, because we want more things, we've exchanged the creator for something created because we just want a little more and we pursue more and we think about more. And as long as we can get ahead and get a little more, it might be an idol. For some of us, it's success. And I'm not talking about, you know, that all success is bad. We're, we're talking about worldly success. We're hooked on the winning. 
Give me the trophy, give me the uh, plaque, the certificate, the award, and the accolades. Give me the write-up in the paper, the, the little article, you know, about look what I've done. And we get hooked on an idol called success. And we obsess for success, and we got to work hard for success. We give all of our time, and all of our attention, and all of our weekends, and all of our money, and all of our, yeah, it becomes an obsession with success. But yeah, okay, yeah, it could be an idol. American Idol, success. More, yeah, success, I could see that. Some of us, uh, maybe, our, maybe our idol is control. Some people, they, they just pursue control, trying to control everything in life, manipulate circumstances to get certain outcomes, right? And, and we want control of this, and what do we always say about those people? They have control issues, right? We don't have control issues, but a lot of people do. A lot of it's because of the pain of their past, but a lot of it is because they're trying to control and manipulate an outcome, a certain outcome. Not necessarily God's desired outcome for their life, but their desired outcome for their life. Because that's their obsession, because that's what they pursue, and that's what their life's all about, then you would say, ah, they worship the idol, the idol called control. Some of us, we worship the idol called now. It's about instant gratification and fulfilling those fleshly desires now. When we talked about Veruca a few weeks ago. Oh, Daddy, I want a new blooper, and I want it now. You know, we, we want what we want, and we want it now, and that's what makes, you know, Amazon so great, two days. And if you live in a big city, I heard it's one day. If you live in the right big city, it could be four hours. Can you imagine just four hours to instant gratification? But when that becomes the main pursuit, the main thing, and the thing you obsess about is getting that now. Some of us, it's work. Work's not a bad thing. God created us to work. Actually created us to work our whole life. Retirement's not in the Bible. And, and yet, this becomes an obsession, this career obsession to climb the ladder and to get these accolades and accomplishments and recognition. And work can become an idol in our life. And we find out, we're giving all my time, all my attention, every ounce to work. And then, the last one we talked about in that series was an idol called me. Now, what's amazing about the me idol is probably the most offensive to us. It's like, oh, that's an ugly idol. Me, the idol called me. But me is wrapped up in every other idol we talk about. Because the rampant pursuit of more and the accumulation of more and the pursuit of more and the rampant accumulation of just stuff is really about me wanting more so that I can be better for, provided for so that I can have more stuff. And you see, it, when you get to the, the idol called the success, it's about me recognition, right? I want to make sure I get these awards and certificates and recognition and the write-up in the paper and, and everybody online, you know, wow, you're so great. You're so awesome. Great for you. We celebrate that worldly success because it's all about me. And control, Controlling these circumstances and outcomes is because I want it to end up the way I want it to end up. And now is about getting my needs met and not waiting now. And work is about me getting accolades and feeling validated through my career. And you see that really all the other idols go back to this me idol, the selfish idol. All of the other idols seem to point back to me and perhaps a problem that I have in my heart. 
because the pursuit of all of these things, more success, control now work, and things that are all about me, are taking me away from the God that rescued us out of Egypt, that rescued us from our sin, and said, have no other gods before me, and no idols, and if you do make an idol, don't worship it. No idols, and no idol worship. So what's the truth about this? How can we remedy this? What does God want to teach us through this today? I, I want to teach you some truths about commandment number two. The first one's this. An idol promises to do for you what only God can truly do for you. The idols are going to promise, I can do for you what only God can truly do for you. Now, what's deceptive about worshiping and pursuing those things in life is the fact that for a season, usually not even a season, a moment, it might feel right. It might feel good. It might feel like it's okay. But the truth is, whatever that idol is promising you, really only God can do for you. For many of us, it's just the meaning of life. It's to feel valued as a human being. We all are created with this God-shaped hole in our hearts. And I know you've probably heard that before. I know we've had that sermon illustration before. But it's true. It's that we're created with this God-shaped hole. And, and the fact is that so many of us, our whole life, are trying to put something else in that God-shaped hole. You know, a human relationship. I just found Mr. Right, or if I just found Mrs. Right, then I would be happy and fulfilled, right? But God says, I'm the one. I'm the relationship that will make you happy and fulfilled. You know, low-hanging fruit, so many times we point to the people that struggle with addictions. Oh, alcohol, you know, God-shaped hole, and they put alcohol in there, put drugs, you know? Fact is, there's probably more people that put food in that hole in their heart, or maybe caffeine, or maybe nicotine, but maybe those are a little more cleaned up than, you know, crack cocaine. And yet, it could be a relationship, it could be money, it could be the rampant accumulation of stuff, it could be anything that we've really talked about in the sermon so far, that we take that and we try to use that to fulfill our hearts. Because all of us this morning, if you think about it, we're all pursuing something. We're all pursuing something right now. And if your first thought when I said that was not God, but it was a car or a woman or things or the promotion I'm after at work or making sure I get written up in the paper this week or making sure my social media is perfect or making sure I get a thousand likes. God's saying, wait, <laughs> no other gods before me, no idols, nothing created more important than me and don't worship idols. An idol promises to do for you what only God can do for you truly. Same thing, another truth about commandment number two is one of the messages throughout the whole Bible is to smash your idols or your idols will smash you. Smash your idols or your idols will smash you. Run away, get rid of them. Every time you read this, and, and, and folks, we, we, we're in Exodus. I know you're thinking, oh, this is old school, it's Old Testament, oh, this is Exodus. No, 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 no. This is all throughout Scripture. In a little bit, we're going to talk about a, a passage in Acts 17 where the Apostle Paul is addressing idol worship. And you're going to be like, what? Idol worship in the book of Acts? That's in the New Testament. Yeah, idols appears in about every book of the Bible. Do you think it's a problem if it's mentioned that much? 
Do you think there's going to be something that's in competition for your heart? And the devil will use whatever he can use to get your mind's attention and your heart's affection off of God and onto anything else in this world, which is all going to fade away. Like when, when you die, it's gone in this world. Only eternity matters. But one of the messages is, destroy those idols or those idols will destroy you. Smash them or they'll smash you. Part of that's because of what the idols promise. The idols promise security, like more. If you said a little bit more, I feel more secure. Yeah, they promise security. They, they promise influence in life. Oh, yeah, people are going to come to you. Man, because you're so good, can you give me some advice? On this, and oh, oh man, an idol will give you influence in life. An uh, idol, you know, baseline will give you happiness in life. Everything that you've been wanting in life. Oh, yeah, idol will give you happiness. Idol promises, uh, idols promise contentment. If you have that, if you do this, and yeah, if you just find that person to be your person, oh. Idols promise meaning in life. But here's what actually idols deliver. Idols deliver bondage. The pursuit of things that have no eternal value lead you to bondage. If we're going to talk about money and things, we can point to scriptures that say, hey, the borrower is slave to the lender. Bondage. Bondage in your relationships. Because of all that pursuit and things you did after that past one and all those mistakes you made keep coming up in your life somehow, in your relationships, bondage. That's what idols really deliver. Idols also deliver emptiness. These are feeling empty at the end. I, I, I was reminded uh, of this uh, child of the 90s named Kurt Cobain. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, don't, doesn't ring a bell. Nirvana ring a bell for anyone? Kurt Cobain had it all. He had just released the number one album with the number one song. I mean, he was the cool looking guy, you know, and at 27 years old, he takes his own life. And he had it all. He had the money. He had the, the, the ladies lined up. I mean, he lived in the perfect area. I mean, his life from the outside looking in, you would have said, I would like to be Kurt Cobain. And he takes his life. He commits suicide. And I can't remember if I read that he had written this or that he had told friends this, but he had talked about, right before he committed suicide, within a few weeks, how empty he felt. Empty? You're full. I mean, you're everywhere. You're, you're number one. You're on top of the world. You're talented. You're good looking. You've got people that love you. You've got women lined up. You've got all the riches of the world. I mean, you have the world by the tail. And he says that he felt more empty than he ever had before. And I'm wondering if he'd been chasing some idols that he thought would provide for him what only God could provide for him. And he chose not to run away and smash those idols and he ends up taking his very life. But idols deliver bondage and emptiness. Another thing that idols deliver is trust issues. Man, I could spend an hour on trust issues. You know what I'm talking about. People that have control issues, sometimes they also have trust issues because of how they've been harmed in the past when they were pursuing ungodly relationships with ungodly people in ungodly ways that produced ungodly results which affects their second and third marriage because they still have trust issues about what happened. 
in the past. Idols deliver bondage and emptiness and trust issues. And another thing that they deliver is distance. This void that you feel, this distance, sometimes in your human relationships, but in your relationship with God. In your relationship with God, this distance, that's what idols really deliver. And that's why throughout Scripture, one of the messages of the Bible is to smash your idols or your idols will smash you. There was a king named Hezekiah. You can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 18. He had taken over the throne at the age of 25 from his dad, who was King Ahaz. You may perhaps be familiar with Ahaz. All of these kings were the kings of Judah, were from the lineage of David, King David, David and Goliath David. And it's amazing because if you go into 1 Kings chapter 17, you actually read that Judah had taken after Israel. Israel had become idol worshipers and they were getting, you know, exiled and taken over by Babylonians and I think it was Assyrians in that chapter. And all these bad things were happening in their life because they were idol worshipers. They weren't worshiping God anymore. They were worshiping the things, the created things of the world. And they were pursuing those things. And in chapter 17, God tells them again and again and again to stop doing this. And then we get to chapter 18. And Hezekiah takes the throne as a 25-year-old. And Hezekiah decides, I'm going to clean up this place. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to put him back on the throne. He's going to be the center of Judah. He's going to be the center of my universe. And look what it says in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. It says, he removed the high places where the idol worship was going on. He smashed the sacred stones, the little stone idols. He cut down the Asherah poles, which were part of cult worship. He broke into pieces. Listen to this. This is very interesting. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. Why? For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Do you remember that story? Do you remember the story when the people were out in the desert and they were wandering in the wilderness and they were, eating, they were getting, uh, the snakes had infested them and they were getting bit by the snakes. And of course, what do they do? Anytime there's a problem, they do what? Oh, now I gotta turn to God, right? Oh, now, now I need God. Cry out to God. God says, all right, Moses, form this image of a snake, put on this pole really, really high up, 15, 20 foot pole, and, and just put it before the people. And if the people are bitten by the snakes, if they look at that, they won't die. That it'll heal them. And that had become an idol for them. Not the God that had saved them from these poisonous snakes. Not the God whose idea it was to even form that. They had an act of obedience for them to be healed. No. We're not going to worship that. We're going to burn incense to the image of the snake on the pole. You read in these two chapters, it will make you so frustrated with God's people after all that he had done for them. But Hezekiah said, no more. No more idols from here on out. I want to put God back as the center of Judah. And if you read chapter 18 after he had done that, and I'm saying he encountered some hardship there, push him back on the people. But after he'd done that, it says that Judah was blessed because they were walking with the Lord. And it says even that everything, everything that Hezekiah put his hand to was blessed and successful because God was center in his life and in that nation's life. And because he was center, they were blessed because they were keeping his commands and his desires. They remembered him as their rescuer. 
And they said, no other gods before you, no idols, and we will not worship idols any longer. And he smashed them and he got rid of them. And they were blessed because they were walking with the Lord. Here's the fact this morning. God will not bless the life where he's just included and not exalted. God will not bless the life where he's just included and not exalted. And here's where a lot of us are at this morning. I include God. I include God. Sunday morning, I get up, go to church. I include God. I prayed twice this week. Thanked him for my food. One time, somebody was really sick, and I prayed for them. I include God. I read my Bible three times this week, three verses each time. And God would look at you and say, I don't care. I just want to be the best, the most, the highest, the thing you value most in life in this world because you're going to really care about it in the life to come. Me, no other gods before me, no idols, and do not worship idols because I am the Lord your God. I'm the one that saved you from the slavery in Egypt and from the slavery of your sinfulness. I am your Savior. I'm your God. And when the world says, we offer you this, I push back and say, I've offered you eternal life. And everything that you really deep desire want in your life, I'm the one that gives it to you. I'm the only one that can give it to you. Because of that, you choose to worship me. And if you have some idols in your life that you're pursuing, you smash those. Because I don't want to be just included. Sometimes I think Christians just, you know, break their arm, patting themselves on the back because God's included. Oh, when we were at the ball tournament and skipped church, we prayed that morning. Oh, thanks for including God. He doesn't want to be included. He wants to be exalted. And that's what the first two commands are saying to us. Put, put me right in your life. Put me like you actually value my son's sacrifice for you. In Acts 17, the apostle Paul is in Athens. And it's amazing because if you read Acts 17, verse 16, right when he gets to Athens, it says that Paul had left some people behind that were coming to join him. But he was so concerned because the city was full of idols. Idols all over the city of Athens. He was so concerned about that. Why? Because he saw the competition that would be for the gospel. Because these people had already created all of these images and all these shrines and all these traditions and all these things they looked to in life. I mean, they had a God for everything, a God to heal them and a God to provide for them and a marriage God and a sun God and a moon God and all these gods. But what was interesting is the Apostle Paul, as he walked through the town and he's there with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, okay? They were like valued, put on a pedestal. These are the smart guys, smartest guys in the world. These are the smart guys. And he's walking around town with them and he's noticing all these idols. And then he comes to this place where there is a shrine and there's like a stand for an idol. And it says, there's nothing on it. And it says, to an unknown God. Let's <laughs> just make sure all the bases were covered. You know, with all the other gods, he's like, well, this is the one we left out. We forgot about him. To an unknown God. The Apostle Paul says, let me tell you about this unknown God. He, he starts out by telling him, I can see that you all are very religious. 
You care about everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, sky. I mean, you, you got gods for everything. But you have this altar that I found. It says to an unknown God, let me tell you about this God. Because this God is the one true God. As he begins to present the gospel, the good news, it's interesting because the apostle Paul actually demands of them. And these are philosophical people. In fact, at the end of their conversation, uh, they actually ask him to come back. They're like, what you're saying is very interesting. Resurrection from the dead. Hadn't thought of that. Let us think on this and come back to us after a while. Come back. We want to hear you again on the subject of resurrection from the dead. But just as God does in so many times in the Bible, he calls them to repent. Paul's getting there on that missionary journey. If you follow the rest of the story, Paul calls everyone to repent. And repentance means that you turn and that you change and that you go a different direction in life. And here's the deal when it comes to idols. If you, if you read from Genesis to Revelation and, and you just read like all the idol passages, and trust me, I didn't, okay? I did not, I don't have that kind of time, but read a lot. It's amazing because when it comes to idols, it's always about run away. Turn and run away, get away, smash the idols, get away from them, get them out of your life. Run away. But in the command to run away, there's also this command that's really interesting, it means to run to. So in running away from idols, you're running to God. We run away from idols, and we run to God, and we do that because he says, I'm the only God that's true. You're going to have no other gods before me and no idols, and don't worship idols because I love you. I care about you. I rescued you, and don't forget, it cost Jesus's life. Your bounty was through the blood of and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We get to respond to this word today in two ways. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to play a song. And during that song, you're welcome to come over here. There's going to be some elders and some staff, and we'd love to talk to you about your relationship with God, or if you need prayer, or maybe you just need to, I know some of you just feel like, I just need to make confession. We're here to talk to you and to help you. Before we do that, we're going to take communion now. You know, hopefully when you came in, you got the uh, emblems. And if you're online with us, hopefully, hopefully you've made those um, preparations of a cracker and juice or something. Because I'm here to tell you this morning, this meal that we're about to participate in called communion, the Lord's Supper, this is a run-to meal. Run away from the world, run away from your idols, get away from all the stuff that distracts you. And right here, right now, with the family of believers... This bread is my body. This cup represents my blood. Do this in remembrance of me and run to me in this moment. And if you've been away from me all week, run to me right now and use these next couple of minutes to pray and to seek me. Seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, Jeremiah 29, 13 says. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. This is the run-to meal, seeking him first. Let's pray, and then let's take communion this morning. Lord God, I thank you for this opportunity we have to remember the sacrifice of Jesus and to pause and reflect upon the great love and patience that you must have for us. And God, there may be some of us this morning, we walked in here and thought, idols, oh, this will be an easy one. 
And now that we've reflected, it's like, gosh, God, there's so much in competition for you in my life, for you being the most important thing. And God, through the blood of Jesus, through the forgiveness of sins, through the promise of a new life, I want to smash those idols and run away from them and run to you. God, I just pray in these next few moments that you'd continue to speak to us and that, God, we would honor you and we would take of this communion in a worthy manner and understand the depth of love that it represents. And God, I hope that we can all say, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Just take a few moments now and commune with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.